Well, good morning, and I trust that uh, our hearts are prepared to receive God's Word today. Amen? Again, it's always a pleasure to come together and gather around the feet of the Lord. Oh, someday we'll uh, be right there with Him, seeing Him speak and hearing Him speak. You won't have to put up with this voice anymore. <laughs> we can hear Him Himself. In the meantime, He has left His Word right here. And so we, uh, we get together to uh, see what He has to say. And He has a lot of instructions in this book, doesn't He? We are studying in 1 Corinthians. We're just moving right on through that book. And we're in chapter 9 this week. And uh, we have 18 verses. I'm not going to cover the whole chapter this time like I did chapter 8 last week. But uh, that had fewer verses. Uh, this time, uh, we're going to try 18 verses, Lord willing. But um, this is called Setting Aside Our Rights. And uh, as we looked at uh, the study last week, we saw that Paul is answering questions in uh, chapters 8 through 10. And so when you get that in mind, you think, well, here's people actually interacting with the Apostle Paul. And they have some uh, thoughts. And one of them uh, was marriage, as we saw earlier in chapter 7. And now in chapter 8 and 9 and 10, he's dealing with uh, basically one theme. And it was about meat being sacrificed to idols. And I know when you hear that, you're saying, well, what am I doing here today to listen about meat being sacrificed to idols? Because we don't do any such thing, right? <laughs> but we know that God's Word is uh, definitely to be studied and checked out. And we see that all of God's Word is relevant. It's just, first of all, we, gotta see, we have to see what the meaning is in the text, what He meant at that time. And go by the rules of hermeneutics, and then we uh, start applying that to ourselves. And um, and that's not the the least, but we that's the the order that it has to be done with. So one of the questions they ask is, what about the meats being offered to idols? And that's pagan society. They sacrificed uh, meat to idols. They had done that all their lives. Now they're Christians, and uh, so now what, what do we do? Um, if if the meat that wasn't consumed uh, there by the priest, you, you burn the meat, uh, then you throw it away. But you shouldn't be burning the meat, right? So the priest will eat that, but there's way too much meat, so they will uh, wind up selling it to the marketplace. Or people who brought uh, uh, the sacrificial animals will be able to take some home with them. Uh, they just kind of um, uh, divvy it up, uh, have different things to do. But a lot of times, uh, it would wind up on the table at home because people would buy that meat in the marketplace. Chances are that was a good chance that it had been at the temple. And of course, that's what we were talking about last week. Well, do you eat this? Do you not eat it? Do you, do you avoid it? What do you do? What's right and what's wrong? And that's where we uh, were talking about last week, gray areas. Do Christians have gray areas? Yeah, sometimes, is this right? Is this wrong? What do I do with this? We, were, we talked about uh, Sunday, you know, the matter of that. To some people, uh, you, you need to worship on, on the Sabbath, Saturday, or Sunday is to be called um, the Lord's Day, or Sunday is to be called the Sabbath Day. And uh, throughout Reformed theology, there has been all sorts of different ideas on that. Uh, that's just in the Reformed camp. And so you can have a lot of disagreement in a lot of areas. And we talked about clothes and hair and jewelry. And you go on and on and on. We have all these different things. What do we do? You know, here and today it seems like you have a denomination for every little thing. You know, and it's, uh, it's crazy. But um, 
there were actually Christians, new Christians, who said you can't eat that meat because that meat is to idols. And the older Christians, or let's say mature Christians, are saying, yes, you can. You can eat that because we know there's no such thing as other gods. There are no idols. Big deal. I'm going to eat it anyway. I'll eat it in front of you. Look at this. <laughs> you can see you know, what's going on. With the Corinthians, you know their attitude, don't you? They have a matter of pride, and if you have freedom in Christ, use it and abuse it, brother. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what was being carried on there. Uh, that is uh, not the right way. But they were having a great old time eating this meat, and it was becoming very offensive to some others. So who's right? Who's wrong? There's our gray area. What do we do with this? Paul, come on, give us the answer. <laughs> well, here in chapters 8 through 10, he gives us some really good answers. And I think when it boils down to it, we can see how these things work in our own lives too. Um, I think it comes down to, hey, if something that you do, that you know you're free in Christ, but it really makes other Christians stumble when they see you uh, do that, don't do it if it grieves another brother. Uh, we do have complete liberty. Now, we know there are things that are sinful. Many things that are sinful we're not supposed to do. I mean, those are not gray areas. You don't even discuss those. That's sin, that's sin. You repent of that and, and move on. We know there's... Uh, that's what individuals are supposed to do. And that if they don't uh, do it, then there are other individuals in the church to help you do that. And then the church will help you do that. If you have sin in your life that is very flagrant and very offensive. Um, we saw that last week, really, love is what is to limit our liberty. Love is always that law that we have, isn't it? It always comes into play here. So we want we don't want to do something that really offends somebody else, that would cause somebody else to fall into sin. And they start doing what you're doing, and they feel real guilty about it. Um, love. And so liberty is limited by that. So that's what we looked at, and we saw that that was a principle. That's a basic principle as we move right on into chapter 9 this week. We have that laid down now, right? Paul is just fantastic in the way that he writes. Are you amazed by this man? I mean, he has a, an intelligent mind. He is gifted beyond measure. But the thing is, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so the next thing he does is he moves from that principle that he has laid down now, and he illustrates it. And he makes it so simple. And it's going to sound like, hey, I've heard this before. I know this. Let's move on. Let's go into something I don't know. Well, actually, there are certain verses in this text, in 18 verses, that I wasn't sure on. So as we move through here, maybe we'll get some, uh, some answers that can be helpful on, on that. But uh, Paul is the illustration. Don't you like that? It's good to illustrate a principle, isn't it? Okay, here's what this is. Well, he draws it out. He says, this is me. Okay, here's what you go by. Now, you look at me. And he's going to get into his lawyer talents and lay down specific reasons why he is free too. He has liberty. What Paul does? You know, Corinthians were taking advantage of Paul. And because he wasn't uh, taking money from them and such, well, uh, you know, it's almost like they put him on a lower level, in a, in a sense. So he shows he has liberty, and uh, the liberty he had deals with support from the church. He had the right to accept money from the Corinthian church or other churches than that, but he refused to, to do that. That's an incredible thing. That is an astounding thing when you look at what's happening today when you turn on the TV and you see all these televangelists 
and they want you to send their money to them so you can be blessed. Uh, but they want the money first. And they'll take it from poor people. And people have become poor by giving to them thinking that they are going to get double and triple blessed because they give to that ministry. Well, if they're giving to a ministry that's wrong, do you think God will bless that? And so, therefore, that's what happens. But puts me in a precarious position because you're going to think, oh, Dennis is begging for money. I haven't heard him talk about money much, but here we go. I'm, I'm glad there's not brand new people coming in here today because I think, oh, I know what that church is about. I know what that pastor is about. He's trying to beg money from the people. And you guys know that I don't take a salary. Uh, and I'm not begging. I, I just, I'm just telling you, we happen to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and that's where we go with. We were in chapter 6 before, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9 we'll, we'll be into here. And it's, that's where we're at. And so we deal with God's Word uh, the way it is. But uh, I wouldn't choose this topic myself. And, and I've been saying that quite a few times down through this book, haven't I? And there is the advantage of expository teaching because I don't teach what I want to teach. I have to teach what God says here. <laughs> and so we go... And I'm not apologizing for God's Word. I'm just saying my humanness wouldn't want to be talking on this. Um, so you guys get it. I'm not trying to knock you over the head. And God has, has blessed this church in, in having uh, enough money to spread around and get it out to different ministries in different ways. We're small, but God has blessed hugely. And uh, so you'll know from the outset that uh, this is why we're covering this. this, is where we're at. Paul is saying that he gives up his rights for the sake of others. Now, if you get that, you've got the whole message. You can say, okay, we can go now, right? No. <laughs> that, I'm going to try to elaborate on that and give you reasons why. We should give up our rights for the sake of others. Now, that's bringing you into some application now, isn't it, already? But uh, let's, let's get some uh, the doctrine here first. Let's take the first two verses and let's look at the authenticity of Paul. You get to look into his life a little bit around here and would, would you say that he is genuine, that he is authentic? Well, he backs it up and he just comes right out and says it. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You know what Paul starts with? He starts coming in there banging them with a bunch of questions. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ? Are you not my work in the Lord? Boom, he shouts off four questions right, right off the bat. They're rhetorical questions. You know what rhetorical questions are? They're ones that people go, well, yeah, right, yeah, of course, yes. That's what he's doing. Am I not free? If they had freedom in Christ, is that what chapter 8 has been about? Part of it. He showed that they, you're free. You're, you're free in Christ. Okay, they knew they were free in Christ. He says, am I not free? You're acting like I'm not free in Christ. You guys are, but no, I'm not, huh? But here he says, am I not free? Of course. So if they're free, he certainly is because why? What's, what, I'm in, I, am I not an apostle? I'm an apostle. If all people, if, if they're free, he certainly is even more so. Because he's sent by God. He's an apostle. A free apostle. So the first thing Paul illustrates is his own life. 
that he's an apostle, that he was chosen by God, he was sent out, and he has greater freedom than the average Christian. He knows for sure what his freedoms are, how far he can go. Um, so he, he's there to deliver the gospel. So he's authenticating himself to show his genuineness. He proves he's an apostle. And he says at um, in verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Whoa. Have they seen Jesus Christ their Lord? No. But had Paul? Yes. But he wasn't like the other apostles that had hung around Jesus for three and a half years. He hadn't seen Him. You remember, I think it's in Corinthians, that said He was one who was untimely born. That meant He was an apostle that came later. He's numbered with the apostles. He is that kind of an apostle. But He didn't see Him the way they did. But He saw the risen Lord. Go back to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And in Acts 1, you really have um, Matthias being chosen as an apostle. He had walked with the Lord. He had seen the risen Lord. That was was, um, a requirement. Uh, And there were many people that had seen the risen Lord. There were over 500 witnesses. We know about that. And so in 21, he says, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, they're the ones who who had been around with Jesus uh, before His uh, uh, death on the cross and His resurrection, beginning from the baptism of John, going all the way back to be chosen as an apostle, you had to go back to the time of John the Baptist. I'll tell you, there are people today that are claiming to be apostles. Well, all you have to do is challenge that thought with the Word of God. One of the requirements is that they had to see the risen Lord. You can say, well, have you seen the risen Lord? And some of them say, yeah, I had a vision. I saw the risen Lord. He came right up to my bed and and there talked with me. Well, okay, did you walk with Him whenever He was here on earth? It says, from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So the, the, the apostle that had to take the place of Judas had to have walked with the Lord and then been a witness of the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 12 says they have to have the signs of an apostle. And they have to be able to do mighty signs and wonders and miracles. That's another sign of them, being able to, to see that. So the, the apostles... And we see in Ephesians 2 that apostles are the foundation of the church. Christ Himself being the cornerstone, the apostles are the one who gave us the Word of God, taught that Word of God, laid the foundation, and then the church was built upon that. And Christ Himself. So, that is the idea. If you go uh, into Acts 22, verse 17, Paul is really qualifying himself. And... um, in 22.17, he tells his story. Uh, he tells the story about uh, on his way to Damascus. And we could go to Acts 9, but uh, let's go to 22.17 first. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Uh, Did you notice what's happening? Somehow, Paul saw Christ. 
Christ tells him, get out of here because they're not going to believe the testimony that you have of what has happened to you and what you're going to do. You better get out because they're going to kill you. <laughs> uh, but he saw Christ in that sense. He saw Him. Go back to Acts 9 now, verse 4 and 5. And this is the testimony of Paul of what happened in an incredible way. And verse 3, he journeyed, uh, came near Damascus. Suddenly a light shone out from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus. Boy, this had to be convicting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Was he persecuting Jesus? Well, technically we know he was, but who was he really persecuting? The church. But the church is the body of Christ. So he actually is persecuting Christ. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So we see there in verse 4 and 5 that this was something that Paul didn't choose to do. He's given a ministry out of this and he is saved by this. Did Paul have it in his own mind? Did he come to the own conclusion that I think I will decide to follow Jesus? No. He was on the road to Damascus to do what? To persecute the church. That was his main key and goal in life because he was righteous and he was going to get rid of this church because that was a terrible uh, blight against the Judaism. But God chose him. I think this is a great testimony of how people are awakened from their dead spirituality and Christ comes to them. Uh, verse 15 of Acts 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many kings he must suffer for my name's sake. And that's Paul. And he suffered for Christ's sake. For the very name of Christ. Wow, that's incredible. Wow, uh, am I not an apostle? And that's what Paul is saying. He's different than them. He's still a man, just like us. But his office is not something to be taken lightly. And in 2 Corinthians, he continually defends his position as an apostle. And here he starts off, even 1 Corinthians, there were people that were doubting that he was an apostle. You can't be an apostle. Look, you just came here just like an ordinary man. You didn't have great words and high words to speak. What did Paul, what did Paul already said? I know nothing but Christ crucified. Right? And he could have, oh, he could have spouted off just tremendous philosophy and blew them away. So now people are saying, oh, he's just, he's just another teacher. Nothing big. Not apostle. I know some of those other ones. They're now, Peter, he's an apostle. You know, we know him. He's an apostle. Okay, well, that's one thing. Another thing is that the Corinthian church was a fruit of his ministry. For he says in verse 2, If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. You know that. I came here. You know what happened. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are my proof. You're my living proof. Hey, did anybody see the living windows this weekend? I never have seen that. I miss it every year. Do you see that? That's, that's, that's living, right? People are living in that. 
Well, these are Corinthians who are actually living witnesses. Oh, you want proof? Oh, right there, right there, right there, right there, right there. He led them to the Lord and then He discipled them. I think that's pretty good proof. That's who He is and what He's done. Their fruit. The seal... He says, you're the seal of my apostleship. When you have a letter in the Roman Empire at that time, you have a seal, it's stamped on there, and that guarantees that's who that's from and what is there, and nobody is to alter what's on the inside. Unless it's to the one that it's sent to. The seal is genuine. So Paul is responsible for giving them the Gospel, and they responded to it, so they had faith, and they had fruit. Faith, salvation. And if you are saved, what are you going to have? Fruit. And he says, you are my fruit. You are my work. Look what God has done in them, right? So they were genuine. Paul is genuine. He's proved that he was genuine. And so there is the authenticity in the first two verses. What do you think about that? Do you think he's really the apostle? Yeah, as long as... Of course, there were other apostles, but he's the, the apostle sent here to the Corinthians. Now, verse 3 through 6, he starts telling about the, his rights. Now, remember, this is dealing with freedom. He says, okay, I know you're free in Christ. So am I. They seem to have forgotten that he's free, though. And he says, hey, I have rights. So, if we break it down, we go to verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Now, here are questions. Would you ever like to debate this Apostle Paul? Oh, my. If you ever tried to take him on, just like anybody tried to take on Jesus, you would be seated quickly. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense... Uh, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Alright, now here's his rights. He's maintaining that he has liberty. And you'll notice in verse 3, he says, My defense to those who examine me. The word for examine there is uh, anacrino. It's dealing with judgment. It's a legal term for investigating a person out before a decision is made in a court case. They make the examinations before they come to court. That's what they were doing with Paul. And when you look at 2 Corinthians, you'll see that constantly. He's having to defend his apostleship. He has enough to deal with, and now you have these Corinthians that are saying, he's not an apostle. What kind of rights does he have? Well, two, two things he's mentioning in 3 through 6. One of them is financial support, and a second one is he had the right to be married. Was Paul married? No. Financial support. Did, how about, did he take financial support from the Corinthians there? No. Did he have a right? Yeah. He had the right to be supported. He says, are you going to starve us? Are you going to keep us... Are you going to make us thirst to death? Are you going to starve us? You're not going to feed us? Wow. The second one dealing with marriage, he had the right to marry. He could have married. They were the other apostles were bringing along their wives, and uh, they're there to be helpful to fulfill the ministry. Wives are important. Pastors have wives. 
uh, leaders in the church have wives. And it's, it's very interesting. You can look at this text right here and you can say to the Roman Catholics, how come your priest, your bishops, your cardinals, your popes are not married? How come none of them are to be married? Well, they have rules in that church that they're never to be married. So therefore, what's the problem? Well, you have them doing what? You have them having all sorts of relationships with young men and young women. And you hear about the stories and the babies they have produced out of it and all the hidden secrets and it comes out. And you even had right here in our own town uh, a building that was not too far from us right on down the street that I noticed moved out of this town because they had an embarrassing situation with some people there. Uh, I don't know why they moved, but it's kind of interesting. I'm just telling you that they don't allow them to marry. Well, right here, uh, there were actually apostles who were married. And do you know one of them who was married? Peter. Peter, the... They call the foundation of the church. We know Christ is. But they said, oh, He is the apostle and we descend from Him. He's a pope. Did you know that they say that Peter was the first pope? Did you know that Peter was married? He had a mother-in-law, we see in the Gospels. And we see right here in verse 3, a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, James and Jude, and Cephas. Did you know Cephas was out there doing his ministry like Paul was doing? And Cephas, or Peter, actually had a wife he brought along. And he was supported and given money to support him and his wife. Boy, I'll tell you, that blows a hole right through the Catholic doctrine, doesn't it? Isn't that incredible? Why don't they be honest? And there are other passages that talk about that. The celibacy, that's, uh, that's, that's terrible. And that's why they've had so many problems, uh, among other things. But I, I just bring that out to say, hey, here's a great passage to use. I challenge you, if there are any Catholics listening, um, this is God's Word. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Just look in your Scripture and you'll see that even in a Catholic Bible. Um, I get very irritated whenever I hear false doctrine, so I have to bring it out. So it's defense of the faith. And if you have to use it, then you use it. That's a good question to ask them. Hey, how come Peter had a wife and the other popes don't? Okay, there were a lot of people that thought Paul was not worthy of his rights. Paul's going to build up his case. We've seen his rights here. He has right to be financially supported. Didn't take it. He had the rights to be married and and to have her along and for her to be supported. But he forego he forgo foregoed. <laughs> What's the word for that? He gave up his rights for the gospel. <laughs> okay, seven through fourteen. Well, what we have here is defense and. What he's going to do is he's going to ask some more rhetorical questions. And he uses some examples here. I think they're great. Verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, what soldier shows up to the battlefield with his own gun that he bought, and he he bought his own ticket to Baghdad with his own wages, he brings, his, he brings his own machine gun. He buys his machine guns and all his artillery and everything. He's the one responsible for it. He brings, he brings his grenades out there. <laughs> out of his own pocket. Or maybe his family did that. No, no, no. Soldiers have never 
done that. Paul knows that. He says, who goes to war at his own expense? At his own thing. You know, you're supported by your, your country, right? They, they pay the way. Then he uses another one. Don't you like these examples? Boy, you know, they had to shut up after this. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit? A farmer, right? A farmer. Have you ever seen a vineyard farmer going down to the supermarket and buying a whole bunch of grapes when he's been working around the vineyard all day and putting that in there? And he says, huh, I think I'll go down and get some grapes downtown. (laughs) That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Or you can apply that to any kind of, what, farming. So he's used what? He's used the warfare, a soldier. He's used farming. And it's, oh, by the way, let me give you another one. The shepherds. Who, who tends a flock and doesn't drink of the milk of the flock? Boy, he hits right at the level where they're at. Did they have soldiers in Corinth? Oh, you know it. Because they were right there, right near a port. Corinth, you know, you, you can imagine the many navies. Navy men showing up in Corinth. Oh, I bet you they had a blast in that city, huh? Yeah. A lot of soldiers around there. And a lot of farmers. And a lot of shepherds. So he goes right to where they're at. And shepherds don't work for free either, do they? They don't get paid much, but they don't work for free. Now, with these three kind of customs that they would be familiar with, these three examples, uh, it's common sense. For ones who would minister the gospel should be taken care of. And now, what he's going to do is go to the law. Now, we've seen him use the examples of what? Uh, A farmer, a shepherd, a soldier, right? Now he goes, oh, by the way, for people who are Jews, I'm going to go right back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Well, he didn't say that, but it would be definitely alluding to this thought here. 25.4. One sentence. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Boy, that's simple. Here's his fourth example. We're going to go back to our First Corinthians nine eight. Do I say these things as a mere man, or doesn't the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, "You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain." Hey, does that sound familiar? We just read that in Deuteronomy. And if you have a study Bible or some other Bibles, you might have them there in italics. And that that's a quote right out of Deuteronomy twenty five. So he uses that. He didn't say, "Hey, this is out of Deuteronomy twenty five four. He just said this. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does He say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So he continues on. And Paul makes sure that there are no stones unturned. He uh, gives examples after examples, and now he gives Scripture, which he always does. He defends the law of Moses. And you know the Old Testament right here is uh, undergirding moral principles for people of the New Testament. So he lays that out. God even cared about the animals. Have you thought about that? God is so good. And I know there are a lot here that really like animals. Right? You have them at home. You love animals. 
cats or dogs and, and many others. And I, I see Bob there going like this. He knows how much work it is. But, you know, we can say, well, what, I wonder if we're going to have animals in the kingdom. Well, as far as my Bible says, it's, it talks about lions and lambs and such. And Why wouldn't there be? There are some here. There are many here today. Why did He create them? Was it a mistake? He said, oh, I'm not going to have those anymore. I, I tend to think, why not? They're just more in a, in, a, in a way that's more, probably a lot better than the way we can even think. But, uh, whatever. He cares about the animals. He, he makes sure that they get fed. He feeds the birds of the air. Matthew 6, right? He's the one doing that. You can say, yeah, but they're taking that stuff off my tree. There's little berries out there. And, uh, you know, they'll be feeding and taking your worms out of your yard. Well, good. Maybe they can take so many out and the moles won't bother the yard. But we're constantly fighting sin. You guys have moles in your yard this year? (laughs) Runners all over the place. It just reminds me of sin. Okay, sorry about that. Hey, if oxen are cared for, if they are cared for by God, how much more is God concerned about His people? Way much more. They, they get fed. But His servants, He is really concerned about. We know about that oxen treading. We know that there's like two methods. And you have these oxen or horses, and what they would do is they'd have this, uh, the grain that'd be spread out all over the, uh, a flat, hard surface. And uh, it would be like called the threshing floor. And the oxen or the horses would drag this weighted board across the grain. And they'd walk around uh, like a pole. And they'd crush uh, the, the stalks there as they'd go around this uh, central position. Uh, but other times they wouldn't necessarily use that weighted board. Sometimes they'd just walk on the grain with their feet. And they'd trot it down. And what he's saying in the law here is that the farmer isn't to muzzle that ox. Now, if that muzzle keeps going around and around and stomping on the grain, he says they have the right to any time they want to go down there and eat some of that grain. That'd be a natural thing, right? But they're working it out and they're getting hungry while they're doing that. Let them eat it. He says, that's okay. And that was put in the law. That was in the law. Now, I'm sure there would be some people that would be come up there with something like a baseball bat and clubbing them right in the mouth as they start eating their grain. There's always people like that, right? They abuse animals. And he says, don't muzzle the ox. And he put that thing over them where they can't eat it. He says, let them eat it. God is concerned about them. He wants, he wants, and it's just wise, isn't it? Have you noticed that God's principles are always wise? Isn't that interesting? There are certain things in there you don't understand and later on you find out, I'm glad he put that in there. That makes sense. Before it didn't, and now it does. And there are reasons he does what he does. Um, But a moral principle here, he that plows should plow in hope. Uh, A farmer. Um, He uses here in verse verse 10, uh, he's he's saying it, or does he say it all together for our sakes? Ultimately, that's what it is. It's, that's great that he cares about the animals, but it really is coming down back to us. He cares for us. It's for our sake. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written out of Deuteronomy. That he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. You, you plow, you plant the seed, then you come back over when it's harvest time and, and uh, you, you thresh that. And then you have food to eat. 
and, and it, there's the hope that's involved there that, uh, that you'll have to be partakers. And we are partakers of, of the hope uh, that Christ gives us, aren't we? So those who are threshing ought to have hope in sharing in the harvest. Ah, do you see what Paul is saying? Anybody who is in the ministry doing the gospel, and that's what they do full time, he says they have hope, not only that Christ is going to come back, but also that they will be fed and taken care of by the people that they're taking, that they're taking care of. So, uh, he's used warfare, he's used farming, he's used shepherding, he used the law here, and then he even uses what was being done at that time. Uh, verse 11 says, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And then verse 12, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? He's saying, you're paying other people and you're taking care of them. You're not taking care of me because obviously you think I don't have the rights, but they do. Can you imagine this? People who were that way with Paul? Yeah. Because man is still fallen in his thinking, even though he's a new creature, he still has problems with sin, doesn't he? They don't, we don't think right sometimes. A lot of times. We still, our mind isn't being renewed on certain things. And that's why he says renew your mind constantly, because there's so many things back there in that mind that is still thinking like unbelievers. <laughs> and that's why we go through what we do. Because there are a lot of things in here that we don't know, that we thought we knew, and we didn't, and now we do. And so we put that into, into practice. So the president is that the Corinthian church had supported others, and they weren't supporting Paul and, um, the, and Barnabas, let's say. Uh, they hadn't been given enough food, hadn't been given enough drink to quench their thirst. And he says, I had to work in the back alleys and on the side streets of making tents with my own hands, and I met my own needs, needs of my brethren, and I suffered in silence. Why? Why, Paul? Well, it's found in the end of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right. Does he have the right? Oh, boy. But we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. We're enduring this. It will hinder the gospel. So we're going to pay our own way because the gospel can keep on going. Then he uses another. He says, that's enough. Okay, Paul, I got it. But he goes on, verse 13. Do you know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Paul is making a point after point after point after point. Does anybody have an argument with Paul now? He even used the priest. And he says, okay, the priests were supported by the tithes of the crops and the sacrifices that were being ministered in the temple. And he says, that's what the Jewish people did. You know, that's how they made it. And then in verse 14, even so the Lord commanded this. The Lord Himself. That's a pretty good reason Paul might have been referring to Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when he sent out the 70. You remember the 70 that were sent out? In Luke 10, 7. And remain in the same house. If you're taken in by a family and you're living in that house while you're ministering, eating and drinking 
such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Don't go from house to house. Stay at that one place and remain there. And let as you minister to them and other people surrounding that area, they'll take care of you. They'll give you the food and drink, the things you need. And so the Lord Himself even said that. Probably where that. I think He's made a watertight case. What do you guys think? Well, I don't think a lawyer could have done a better job. Number four, not using our rights. This goes from 15 through 18. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Wow, Paul. What an understanding he had. What really matters is how you serve the Lord. What's your motivation? What's our motivation when we do the things that we do? And I think that would be a good thing to ask pastors, preachers, anybody who's paid. Is it because you're going to get paid such and such? And if you don't get such and such, you're not going to to work there? Well, you have to use common sense. Is is the Lord putting you there? But is your motivation to preach the Word? We've already seen that they have the rights to do that, but is that the reason why one goes to minister? They go off to seminary to get that education so they can get a great big church and that people will be wowed by their great knowledge because they went to a seminary. Seminaries are great. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think there are uh, some really good ones here in, in our country. Many, not so good, but there are quite a few that are good and uh, that is meant. That's a good thing. I, I would encourage anybody that wanted to go there, go, please. But... Um, why do you go there? To preach the gospel. I want to be able to preach it the best way that I can. My motivation is I want to get the gospel out to the people who are lost. I want to get the gospel so I can disciple others, right? That God would be getting the glory. If that's the motivation, that's good. But if it's I'm going to go there because I want to make a good living. I want a big church with a lot of people, with a lot of money, because I want to make a good living myself. Well, I would tell them... Don't, don't do it. Uh, matter of fact, I think there probably ought to be a lot of pastors who should be just taken out of the pulpit because that's their motivation. That is their whole reason why they're there. They're there to make a living. And they obviously show it. They do not study. They do not preach the Word. They don't feed their people. Um, a high motive, and Paul's purpose was men, not money. And that's the whole idea behind this. He gladly waived his rights. Paul is restating that principle. He loved uh, the people. So his love limited the very rights that he had or the liberty that he had. He had liberty to really get paid well. But he didn't use that. That's an incredible thing. Oh, if some of those televangelists would only read those passages. Read this chapter right here, huh? Look in 1 Thessalonians 
For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. Those are work words. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the Gospel of God. When he was in Thessalonica and there was a poor area there, he didn't charge them. He, they didn't give money to him while he was there. Now remember that, while he was there. Go to Second Thessalonians, the next epistle, chapter 3, verse 8. And he says this, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We don't want to take that money. They were having a hard enough time. It was a struggle. And you know what? He didn't want anybody to ever say that he was a sponger. Never could they ever say that about Paul. Never did they ever have an occasion to say, well, he's in it for money. I'm sure there were people going to say that, but that's not the reason. He had nothing uh, to boast about that. Uh, He was passionate. Here's another thing. I've written these things that it should be done uh, to me... uh, for it be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon my on me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Did you know that he was chosen by God to be saved? He was chosen by God. He was called by God to be a pastor. You know, there's a lot of people, um, they don't have the calling of God. They just call up and just plump themselves into where they're at and that's what they do and never were called in the first place. And that's why we have so many problems. But he was so compelled. He couldn't help it. Matter of fact, he was chosen from before the foundation of the world to be this apostle long before he ever was educated. And God says, oh my, look at look how smart that Saul is. Man, he's good. I'm going to use him. God already had this in mind. Let's go to Galatians 1.15. You have 1 Corinthians, you have 2 Corinthians, then you have Galatians. Galatians 1.15. Am I talking fast? I need to talk a little faster. Because time is moving on. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. The idea is there, the mother's womb. He said, oh, He saw Him in the womb. He saw how great He was going to be. Well, he knew Paul long before the foundation. We know that. But he's saying before he was born, he was called through his grace. That's God. It wasn't based upon how good Paul was. We know that. If Paul would have kept on doing his goodness, he would have continued to kill the church. He probably would have destroyed it. If he could have, That's not, that wasn't going to happen. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Look in Jeremiah chapter 1-5. I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Think about it. This is great. Jeremiah says, "Before or the Lord is telling Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I had relationships with you. I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart before you were ever born. I ordained you a prophet to the nations long before you were born. Jeremiah doesn't have a chance. That's what he's going to be. But God, I'm going to take this message out there which is not favorable and people hate it. I'm going to tell them all this bad news and also some good news. And they're going to reject me. Yeah, that's right. 
And that's exactly what I have ordained you for. <laughs> well, thanks, Lord. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. O Lord, You induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. <laughs> Uh, you know what? Jacob struggled with the Lord in a literal wrestling match. He struggled. But we know who really won. He, he was, he, you know, God had in mind, and this is, this is going to be Jacob. He's later going to be named Israel who prevailed with God. I am in derision daily, Jeremiah says. Everyone mocks me for giving the gospel. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. He said, God, I'm tired of taking this word. I'm not going to... I shut up. I'm just going to shut... That's it. I'm not going to do anymore. I'm tired of taking it out and being unpopular and people mocking me and making fun of me. And look at it. It's not paying off at all. And then he said, I couldn't do that. His word was in my heart like a burning fire. I couldn't help it. It kept wanting to come out and it had to. Same way with us all. You were born for a purpose. You have the gospel. And it burns within you. Don't hold it back because people are going to make fun of you. Because that is going to happen. Guaranteed. And I don't have enough time, but if you were to go back to John the Baptist, and you know that story, he also, before he was born and in the womb, that God had him chosen to do the ministry he did. He didn't have a choice. He didn't have free will. Jeremiah didn't have free will. Paul or Saul didn't have free will. And so it goes. And this is what happens. And uh, he had passion, didn't he? Paul did. Uh, He says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. You know what woe is? It means bring down the judgments of God. I am judged. I'm condemned if I don't preach the gospel. He didn't have a choice. You know, I think we'd be much better off in this country today, as far as the church is concerned, if there were fewer ministers in the pulpits. If they're not preaching this gospel and what we're talking about, they shouldn't even be there. They should be totally out of there. You say, well, they speak some great words, though, and they're so intelligent. Get them out of there. Get them out. Unless they preach the Gospel. And uh, that's why we're in the state that we're in as far as the body of Christ today. Um, He says, against my will. That's interesting. We're about done here. Thank you guys for hanging on. Um, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel in 16, 17. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Now, what? What in the world? What does that mean? Have you read that? And you go, what, what's going on here? In, against my will, when he says, if I do it against my will, doesn't mean he was unwilling to obey, but that his will had no part in the call 
itself. Do you catch that? And this is dealing with free will on the call, and then of course it applies to salvation too. Uh, but if I do this willingly, I reward. But if against my will, so it doesn't mean he was unwilling to obey and, and to preach the gospel, but he had no part in this call. It was the call of God. It was not his choice to serve Christ. Do you see what the point is that Paul was saying? This is wonderful, isn't it? It was all the call of Christ. He was obligated to preach and he didn't expect reward for preaching. And he's saying that here. I'm not going to get a reward for preaching this, for going out and giving the gospel. I'm not going to get a reward for that. Well, he ought to. Look how faithful he was and we have it here today. Why doesn't he get a reward for that? Because that's what he was supposed to do. You just get done what you're supposed to do. When you work, you do your job. You do it, okay? Should, you, should there be great rewards and, and things lifted up for you? No, you, un, uh, you, um, you servant, as Jesus called him, says, it's like, that's what you're supposed to do. And that's the idea that he's putting forth. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship. This is the stewardship God has given me. It's been thrust upon me, Paul says. He could have expected support, but he chose not to. What's the deal about the reward? What is my reward then? Well, he answers it. You can say, well, if he doesn't get a reward for preaching the gospel, which he does so greatly, what is my reward then? Well, that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. There's a reward. He is not getting any money or support because he chose not to be and he will be rewarded because he didn't want to be a burden and he didn't take from them. Does that mean other pastors who take a salary are not going to be rewarded? No. But he knows that he will get his reward when it all comes down to it. And I'm sure it's going to be a tremendous reward that Paul is going to get because of his his obedience, but ultimately, really, it's saying that he didn't take anything. He forsook his liberty. What's this mean for me? So I'm not a, I'm not a minister, and I'm not expecting money. I don't take money from people. Here's what we're saying: If you have rights and you have liberty, use them in Christ. But when it becomes a stumbling block to somebody else, and you can go off on them and tell them this and tell them that, uh, back off for a moment and think about it and say, okay, I have the rights to tell this person this, but it can be a gray area. Let me, let me think about this, Lord. Um, use me here on however you want, but let's not be hasty. And if I get in their way and I cause a stumbling block, Lord, uh, I don't want to do that. I'll give up my rights to say something here or to do something that I ordinarily would to help the cause of the gospel. That is what I think the principle is. It's not so much about the the idolatry food, is it? It was there. That's the text. But he uses that to expand all so many other things. And we're going to sum it up right here and we're going to be done. You ready? 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And this sums it all up. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox, he says it to Timothy here too, while it treads out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. So, uh, as he's 
talking to Timothy in the pastoral letters, the elders who rule well, the ones who lead there. And so he says, if you have to give up your rights for the sake of the gospel, go ahead and do it. If that will help someone trust in the Lord. I think that's the basic principle. And he's going to give more on that about serving all men. If they're weak, I'll become weak. You know? And uh, if they're, you know, without the law, then I'll be there without the law. If they're with the law, then I'll bring, you know, I'll be right there where they can understand it to. That's his whole idea. That is setting aside rights. Do you think Paul was mature in his walk? Do you think that we need to be mature in our thinking whenever maybe we have rights, but maybe we could, should maybe give them up for that time? And we have to be sensible where there is really sin going on and we know it to be sin and that's another thing. But we want to use wisdom and uh, let God uh, work those things out. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your great wisdom that You've given us and oh, that we can have a love that would supersede our freedom. Thank You for the freedom that we have been given into Christ. As we are slaves, You have set us free And uh, Lord, we thank You as You uh, lead us in Your truth. And as this season goes on, may we uh, just rejoice and use it for glorying in You and also giving the good news to the ones who really, truly need it. In Jesus' name, Amen.